Bit podcast. Today's episode, you can't say that, <laughs> where we are talking about communication limits in games. So joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. Good morning, everyone. We're recording on a brisk Saturday morning. I tried to venture out and it was very nice, but crazily cold. So I retreated to the safety of inside. How are you doing? Good. Things are the same. (laughs) We'll settle for not getting worse, I guess. Yeah. So what have you played recently? Scott and I played a two-player game of Orléans, and I really like Orléans at two. I like, I think that it scales beautifully. I think that it's a really solid game. I think it's funny that Scott likes it, because you would think that it's not his style of game, because it can get very mean, like, oh, I wanted to go to this specific spot. But he doesn't really focus on like, travel and stuff. Mm -hmm. He's a lot more focused on his own, building his own stuff, which I think is why he likes it, because it has the, like, Quacks of Quedlingburg kind of elements, where it's... Drawing from the bag and seeing what happens. Yep, and then a lot of the player actions are for you. They're Even though you're making... You each have your own individual player board, and you're doing an action, and no one's going to this action. Like, everyone has the option of taking that action. It's not really worker placement, because other people can do the same action. It's just the your own individual board that you have to have certain workers to fulfill tasks. Uh, I don't know if I have ever played it with two. I really like Olean in general, and I don't see why I wouldn't at two. I remember when it came out, it was presented as this back-building concept, which sounded very similar to deck-building, but with a different format. In Olean, you have little discs in a bag, and you're building your bag, and they get better, and you use them like resources to do things, basically. But I think what makes it very interesting compared to the deck-builder is that you are never 100% guaranteed of finally seeing what you need, which can be frustrating, but at the same time avoids that sometimes feeling of grinding repetition that can be in certain deck builders. Okay, I will run my deck again and again and again. While there, the order in which things come out is important, the moment where you start trashing is a choice of yours. You don't need to have a specific card. And I really, really like it. Um, I haven't played it in a few months now, but it's always nice to get to the table and it's nice art well clemens franz so very nice i i really like it and that uh was from tmg yes yes and i think it was one of if not the first deluxified game that they put on kickstarter back when kickstarters were still vaguely affordable i think it was like 55 dollars for the deluxified version Today is $60 for just a regular game of the shelf. So, yep. yesterday we tried Mezzo, which for me was not um, a successful experience. Had you played it before introducing it to us? Yeah. And what, what do you like about it? I don't so, know. I just think that it's, it's different. I like the. I like that you don't have the all the options. I like that you have um, you're playing with cards from a deck, and you get a choice of three out of a deck of five. So you're getting more than half of the options, but you have to really like take into consideration where your god is. If you have presence, you have. Um, I I did, will say that I only played it with four. Mm-hmm. And I felt like four was better, more dynamic, maybe. yeah, because it had more like take that from everybody because certain gods can can uh, eliminate people, and so when you're just three, you 
it's hard to find that balance between yeah. three people versus like with four, I feel like it's easier because you have three other people that are working against each other versus two other people. Yeah. So I think that the game is really probably balanced for four or five. Yeah, Mezzo, M-E-Z-O, is a game that came out in 2019. It feels uh, older to me. Uh, it's by John Claudus, and the art is by Daryl Tolinzan, um, and published by Colossal. So it's one of those big area control with a twist, I would say, which right now feels weird to say because I don't think a lot of straight up old fashioned air control, I simply have more units than you and I win are still a thing. Were they ever a thing? Uh, well, <laughs> risk. Risk tends to be the go-to, but sure. also games like Axis and Allies, which are not necessarily air control straight up, but sure, there are a lot of things, but if I have more troops than you or stronger troops, that's a good, very good start. I felt that what uh, Mezzo is trying to do is to keep everyone involved. It has this very weird mechanism where there are different regions that are resolved in different order every round, and that's not particularly new. The new thing is that you participate in the battle regardless of what where you are and what you did. So there is no movement or very limited movement. You simply put stuff on the board. And I think that that, to me, was what made it not particularly interesting. Because the way you put troops on the board is, in player order, you put troops in all regions but one. And I put all troops in all regions but one. And everyone does that. And when we're done, we start resolving the regions in random order. And so everything becomes about how you resolve the battle. And that was a little slow because you do all of this and then you start, okay, we're here. Okay, you have a strength of three, I have a strength of four. So I, I, I can, and the actions that you can take are not so impactful. So for example, often you can take out a unit or bring a unit in. So I'm at four, you're at three. You take out one of my units, I bring in a unit. And so, especially with three, it becomes a lot of, What's the other player doing? The one who hasn't a shot at winning still has two actions to take. They can either pass and simply get the potion, which is kind of point, and that's extremely sad, or they can use their actions and basically decide who among the others gets that region. To me, again, the decisions were not, not particularly thrilling, um, again, compared to other games that I really like in that. The minis were cool. The, there are these oversized, what is it, five inches probably, um, gods, Mayan gods, and that, those were very, very cool. Yeah, I, I liked it when I played through the... So, to be fair, I'd only played through the first age when mm -hmm. I tried first, it. Yeah, tried it. Um, but I really liked it. I thought it was good. It it was with four. Um, so, but it felt like everybody was involved with everything. Like, it felt different. I think that's also why I like it, is because it doesn't feel super about the fighting. It feels a little bit more tactical, even though the tactics that you're doing aren't that impactful on the end result. Mm -hmm. um, it's still... I think with four, I think that's what was missing, was that it needed. I think that the, the fact that you played just one age, that also helps because it, you tend to do a lot of the same stuff in the second age that you do in the first. There are technically a couple of new abilities that you get, but compared to, and I know that sounds cheesy, but that's my go-to comparison for these kind of games, to um, Blood Rage where you draft eight cards, six cards, of which maybe two are special powers. And then in the second age, there are new monsters and more powerful combat cards. And, and you still have the powers from before. Here, you all start with one power out of three, and then you choose another power out of three at the beginning of the second age. And then 
if you get high enough, another one at the beginning of the third age. Well, technically you still get them, but you can get them from lower levels. But anyhow, it's a very limited variation. And also it doesn't have any other great source of variation because the units are, there are two kinds of units. They work exactly the same. You just want to have majority of one of them for a track that feels a little arbitrary. There are warriors and shaman at the end of each battle. Whoever has the most surviving warriors gets a little bonus. And whoever has the most surviving shamans gets a little bonus. So you want more shamans, not because they do something weird, like in um, Rising Sun, where they go check the temples, or because they have a strength of two rather than one, but you have fewer, or because there are special power that can be triggered. It's just, oh, I want to have the majority of one of the two. And that also means that the, they are limited in what the cards can do, because all of these cards, basically when you play a card, you have three options, and you can do two of them or pay a glyph, a thing, to do all three, and you do them in order. So I do one, you do one, and then it comes back to me. Because of this limited variability, the card's impact is also limited, because there is kill one or kill more if you are a tire later in the game or add one or move one so since obviously you cannot give one god a card that is simply stronger than the others because they are simply in the deck it felt a lot of zero-sum movement a lot of times the person who went in the battle with the most units came out the other side with the most units and that that didn't click for me but people do seem to like it enough it's a 7.5 although only 300 people have rated it on bgg don't tank its rating <laughs> I, I will i mean not not to the to a significant level i am just one bucket one in the bucket but what else have you played me um so i played Anomia with you, yeah, uh, which is a variation on the jungle speed concept. So think the opposite of me, so instead of a big, grandiose game, this is a very simple party game or fun quick game. In Anomia, you are flipping cards in front of you, and when someone flips a card that as the same word, uh, the same symbol, the same symbol, you have to mention something. So each card has a symbol and a category. And when you flip two cards that have the same symbol and you're flipping cards in front of you, so if I flip a card and Bob has the same symbol in front of him, I have to say something from Bob's category before uh, Bob says something uh, from my category. And categories can be anything, like famous basketball players, or breakfast foods, or fish. And so, but they're extremely simple. There are very few where I wouldn't know if I was simply trying to list them. Most of the times, it's just that you completely blank, like a breakfast food, and you go ah, that that peanut butter something. I meant cereals, and in the other. While at the meantime, the other guy is trying to say a color, and they go, uh, the the one like like the plant, uh, green, green. <laughs> and you, and whoever gets there faster, it, it, they get it. I think I prefer jungle speed, but it was fun. Um, yeah. I think what makes it a little trickier is that you flip, you have to recognize the symbols, and then read. I almost would prefer to simply flip something and then everyone is trying to, to shout out like a very old category game or something like that. Yeah. But it was fun and it takes 10 minutes and I, I wasn't great at it, but I really like it. Scott was really good at it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> was on top of things. Yeah, I like that one. I bought it specifically to play with um, one of Scott's friends who's not big into games. But wanted still wanted to play a game, so I thought that that would be a good game to try out. So yeah, I I like that game. I think it's fun, uh, and that's Anomia. 
Uh, let's see what else have I played recently. It's a Wonderful World. Oh, you kickstarted that? No. <laughs> What's the sadness? I am sad because I want to have it, but Brian has it, so I I've played it with him. Oh, that's an evolution, so I like that. That that means there are now limits to what you cover to own. I mean, I've literally contacted the design the um the like publishers and to see if I could get like a late pledge and they said no. And then <laughs> Oh, so the Brian has it so I don't need it means now that I know that I cannot have it, I don't need it because I cannot have it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that that's clear. I'm glad we're on the same page. Okay. Um but yeah, no the, then they were like, Oh, you can uh, maybe get it. We're going to be selling off the like last Kickstarter copies in our store. So I've been following them on Facebook to wait for them to release those. So it's a wonderful word which came out, or at least was on Kickstarter. I don't know last year. It's by Frederic Guerard, and the art is by Anthony Wolf, and is published by La Boite de Jeu. So I remember when it was on Kickstarter, and you were considering it. But I don't remember much about what kind of a game it is. So is it a drafting game? Yes. Okay. It's drafting, and um, it has multi-use cards because you can either use them. So you you're drafting, and everyone like drafts at the same time. They and you put it down in front of you, and then there's like a, a like a cleanup phase where. You can either decide to use the card as the resource, which I think is on the bottom right of the card, um, or you can try and build it. And to build it, you need the, the cost that's on the left side, which are usually like four, five, six cubes. And um, if you do build it, then during production, um, you go through each production step in order and I think it starts at like tan and it moves all the way up to blue um, and if you have the most in that section you get one of the little tokens um, either a man or a woman face and um, sometimes they'll give you bonuses if you um, build certain cards they'll say oh these are worth an extra point or something and then there are ones that have endgame scoring and there are ones that just help you produce more. And it's a lot of fun to, like, I really, 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 really enjoy engine building. Mm -hmm. Like, making something, I don't know, I always feel very accomplished when, like, I get an engine going and I'm like, okay, well, I can make this, which turns into this, which turns into this. And in this game in particular, because it's so methodical, the the way that you run each color. Um, if you run an early color and you produce stuff, um, if you build another card by the time you get to a later color, then that will also produce. So it's it's very much like, yeah, it's very procedural, but I really, really like it. I think it's a lot of fun. I think that I've played it with um, two and three and also maybe four. And I've I've liked every play that I've had of it. It's just it's very simple, but it's also you're making meaningful drafting choices. And I think that's the good thing about drafting that they all tend to scale very well. We played uh, Treasure Hunter, which we just mentioned last episode without getting into any detail into it, but it, it scales very well because you're still making a choice out of that little back and back and forth. Actually, some drafting game work almost better in smaller player count. Um, so the, the one question I had, looking at it, it looks very nice, the, the colors and the pieces, etc. is what takes it to the next step or what makes it different from a game, say, like Seven Wonders? Um, I think it's a lot more simple than Seven Wonders. I feel like Seven Wonders sometimes can get a little muddy with the way that, like, you're buying resources from somebody 
in this, you're really only focusing on you. There really aren't any attack cards. There's nothing like that. There's, um, and I think maybe in one of the expansions, there may have been something like that, which I think I read, but I wouldn't particularly care for that. So it's more straightforward. It's a lot more straightforward. It's very much building your own engine and, and trying to be efficient with that and just trying to rack up points. Well, I certainly hope that the publisher, La Bois de Jeu, uh, gets you <laughs> a chance to spend your money on their game so that I can later try it with all of the bells and whistles. Is it coming for day like the, the common mortal sad version does it exist or yeah. is it okay so i might end up trying that okay so why don't we move forward to our uh, review today so we're after raids last week we go back to something a little lighter like we did the camel up the week before and the game that we want to move into for today is a game of thrones hand of the king which is a whimsical game of wits for two to four players uh, <laughs> by Bruno Catala for Fantasy Flight Games. So for a little while, Game of Thrones The End of King had the weird distinction of being my favorite game in uh, the Game of Thrones universe, despite uh, there being much bigger, namely Game of Thrones the board game, or more involved, like Game of Thrones, the card game, examples of it. Now it's probably in contention with the Iron Throne, uh, Game of Thrones. I think I still prefer this one that we're going to talk about today, uh, End of the King, but the other one is a little more accomplished in uh, bringing the feeling of the series. So before going into the details of the game, um, you're not familiar with Game of Thrones, right? I, or are you? I, I watched remember. like one episode and it did nothing for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe two episodes. And I think that's a good thing to keep in mind going into the game. The game is certainly not thematic, and we will get into that. But there are a couple of things that I think we can say that are easier to use or at least make a little for a nicer experience if people know the game. But anyhow, do you want to give us an overview? Sure. You basically are putting cards into a grid, and you have one that are is shuffled into the, the cards that is the mover, basically. And I don't remember what he's called. It's Varys, the master of whispers. Sure. The mover. So <laughs> you um, have this card that you can move in... Um, any orthogonal direction and you get all of the the cards of that color that you pass over right and you then leave the mover in that spot for the next person and then they have the option of moving it in in an orthogonal direction and then all the while, the reason why you're doing this is to get majorities in the different houses. Uh, once you have a majority, you get this little token in front of you, but it can be taken if someone else gets the same number or greater of this of the same house that you're working towards. And they have different number of characters in each house Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, maybe. Yep. And so it's first, for example, a lot easier to get the majority pretty quickly of green because there's two green people. But if someone else gets the other green, then they get the other, then they take the little token, yeah, token shield from you, and then no one can take it. If that's it, you. <laughs> You have it. So, and then once you complete, uh, uh, once a house is completely removed from the grid, uh, you get a small bonus. Whoever takes the last character gets a small bonus of uh, different characters that do different abilities. And apparently, they're really thematic, but they're lost on me because I, I again, I don't know this the series, but it's. It, it made sense, like it, it made 
even though like the the theme of why they did the specific things was lost on me, I still appreciated what they did. That it, it didn't they did specific things and they it worked. Yeah, it was good. And then the winner is whoever has the most majorities in the house. Houses. Yeah. So what do you think, or what do we think? Um, I, I'm trying to give myself a little order in the review, not to just uh, go all around like I usually do. What would you say the main hook of the game is? What, what makes it pop it for you? For me, I think it's the, the fact that while the rules, specifically because the rules are so simple, you care about what you're getting to get majority and whether you can finish a house, because sometimes you may not care about that specific house, but if you get the last one, you can activate these special powers. I think that the main hook for me in this game is that, specifically because it's so simple, you must, can, and will think about what the next player will do. So when you move, you're not only considering what your collection will be, but what the next player collection's options are, and you often are trying to do these two steps down the line. So if I do this, Nathan will certainly do this because it's good. Can I afford Nathan doing that? Maybe yes, but once he does that, Anna will now be able to do that. So no, I need to do this so that the best option for Nathan is a different one, and therefore Anna needs to do this, and then it's my turn again, depending on how many players you're playing. And so I think that that constant, every turn is setting up the next turn, is what makes it very, very intriguing to me. Yeah, it was definitely one that you have to think at least, at the bare minimum, two steps ahead. Because you have to you have to think what the next person is getting, and then the next person, and then ideally you would like to know three steps ahead. But then sometimes, not often, but sometimes someone will do something unexpected, and then you're left with worse options than you thought you had. So... Yeah, I I think that the simplicity of it is awesome. I think that the feeling of the game it's it's very quick, and I like the tempo of the game. I think that that's also really good. Yeah, the pace was is really quick. Each even with all of these things to consider, each turn takes like twenty seconds. In terms of art and components, so the card art is by Mihailo Dimitrievsky. Um, which I think it's Milo, the, the guy who does Raiders, maybe? Is it the same guy? I don't know. I don't know. Anyhow, I think it's very charming. Is in this cartoonish, but not necessarily comical style. And for the theme, since, again, to you, that's unfamiliar, but you mentioned that the little characters, not the ones that you're collecting, but these ones that are triggering so for those of you who are familiar with Game of Thrones, the people in the grid are, again, the different houses. So there are eight Starks, seven, I don't remember which one, maybe the Targaryens. I think the Targaryens, are, there are five of them, there are six Lannister and all of that. And so those are the main characters from the stories. And then all of their henchmen are these activatable powers. And so that's where the theme really comes in, because... The family is, is, of course, all of the Starks are in the same house. Fine. So far, so good. Not particularly clever or thematic. But what the little powers do, and actually how they relate to the theme, is actually very charming. It's super simple, but it is Elin Payne kills a dead Stark. Or Brian of Tarth can go get either Sansa Stark or Arya Stark, either from the board or from another player. And so for those of you who are familiar with the show or the books, those are characters that actually did that in the story or that are trying to do that in the story. And so that also helps because you use six of these additional characters, every supporting characters, whatever, every game. And knowing the the game makes it more intuitive to remember what they do. I mean, it's clearly spelled out on the card, but without having to, to check it. So we already mentioned uh, pace and arc. How, well, the pace at least is very quick. It ends up 
relatively soon, the game in general takes 15 minutes. Do you feel that for you this would be replayable uh, and does it offer some strategy or do you feel it's more like a very, very just do it and play it? So I think that, so if this were like one of the only games that I owned, I feel like I would get tired of it very, very quickly because it's very similar the choices that you're making and and the way that the games play out but in my collection of a number which i'm not at uh liberty to disclose at this time um are you under an audit <laughs> by someone <laughs> uh i think that it's a good game i appreciate the the playtime of it i think that that's you know it's short it's to the point i really like the the it's not area control but kind of area control because you're you're getting the majorities yeah set collection set collection yeah it does it's definitely an abstract uh, with a theme on on top but like most abstracts once you like them you can replay them a considerable amount of time. And in these terms, comparing it to other games, when I would get it out, it, it falls in that area like Onitama. It's a very different game from Onitama, also because you can play it with more than two players and because you're not trying to outmaneuver directly your opponent, you're going around them. But it has the same feel of it's simple enough that. I can replay it, and the very fact that as soon as, as I make a choice, there is a different choice. I don't think that the grid being different creates infinite replayability. Obviously, you need to have it different, but often the choices that you have are similar, so it's a lot also of pushing of, okay, if I leave, for example, one thing that is very interesting is how much can you push the next player towards bad choices before they decide to not take the bullet for the team anymore. Because I can put uh, you, if you play after me, in a position where, oh, you can either do this bad choice for you, or if you take the one that is not as bad, the player after you will get a great payout. And so maybe the first time I do it, you go along and take a bad choice. But when I do it the third time and I'm collecting things, you go, well, I don't care. The next player can have it because now you're ahead. And so there's a pushback. And yes, the the artist you checked, right? Is, yep. It's him, uh, who I really like. He's in the Margraves of Valyria new game in the Valyria series. He has done all of the games with uh, Sean Phillips for... Graphic games and Bruno Catala. I mean, at this point, he has done so many things that I wouldn't know where to start in terms of what I I prefer by him. But the first one I played was Shadows of a Camelot. But obviously, we mentioned Seven Wonders Duel multiple times. Five tribes. Five tribes that we discussed recently. Cyclades that we tried. And is one of those designers, I don't know if he's among my top designers, probably is, but for sure is one of those where the variety and the breadth of things that they do is is impressive. And I think those are the two approaches with designers. You don't find a lot of in-between uh, because there is no particular alternative to that. You either are Feld or Rosenberg where you keep perfecting that feeling, that or even Tashini, which we really like, but they all have the same feeling, even if the games are very yep. different. Or you are a Cathala um, or a Lang, or, well, Lang is probably more in the, the other category. I, I think where you get out of that is with people like Faiduti, because he, he works with so many people that there are certain games that are clearly Faiduti games, all of the ones with the multiple roles and all of that, but he also has experience, a lot of things. Cathala, um, or Catala, I guess, is one of those designers who every game you get is completely different, which also means you might not like all of them, but I have a very good track record with, with him. He has some very solid, solid hits. Abyss, I think, is also his. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, so 
in the end, that was our review of Game of Thrones Hand of the King. Uh, in the Game of Thrones, you either win or you die, but mostly you try to make the, op the, the opponent playing after you die. And so yeah. that's, that's the game. Well, I mean, ideally you would like the person before you to die. So that they leave you a very good spot on right. the board. So in conclusion, I feel like it's a really good game. I think it has beautiful art and it's relatively inexpensive and easy to get. So I think that if you're looking for a filler game with meaningful choices, this is definitely one to check out. And I think the, the theme, while not being particularly strong, but it helps to introduce, especially people who don't play a lot of games, is I have a little card game about a Game of Thrones. And they are thinking of playing, I don't know, Munchkin Game of Thrones or something like that. And all yeah. of a sudden you trick them you trick them into a good abstract. And so that's fun. Scott wants me to reskin this as a Pokemon theme. That's that's perfect. You gotta catch them all. Uh, <laughs> you, it, it almost works better as a Pokemon team. Although I am very unfamiliar with the Pokemon, but well, the humans could be the supporting the supporting characters. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I could see this redone with the Harry Potter. Uh, yeah. Although I have an issue with Harry Potter because I never understand why the Slytherin are just one of the houses is like why don't you just send them all to Azkaban Azkaban but um, and people usually go well because of Snape I'm like sure but he's only needed because the others literaries are evil so just get rid of them and just have three houses I, I don't understand <laughs> um, but we are I, I derail us so I think that's the end of our review our theme of the day Communication limitations in games. So, often in games, communication is a key factor where you need to communicate either if it's a, a team-based game, you need to communicate together to reach a common goal, or um, sometimes in like social deduction games, it's really important to communicate to trick people or to suss out information. There's lots of ways in which communication is important in gaming. So today we're going to talk about games that specifically limit your communication, which can be their, its own mechanism. It's, it's something that it, it's making things harder for you by not being able to just say certain things. And in certain games, you wouldn't have a game if you wouldn't have these communication limits. Like Hanabi, for example. You would just play the game... Play that card. Right. Yeah. Oh, you play that, you play that, you play that. Okay, cool, okay. Yes, and I think that that's fascinating, right? What a limit can can create in a game. Because... Uh, someone said that a game set of rules is defined by what you cannot do, right? Whatever game you think, if in Brisk you could just say, well, I remove all of your troops without having to roll dice or try, that wouldn't be much of a game. But even in all of the Euros that we play, if you could simply say, oh, I'll take all of the resources that I need with this action, that wouldn't be a very fun game. If there was one space that says, get all of the resources you need for this card, that would be... <laughs> Not particularly interesting. But we focus specifically on games that limit communication. The one exception that we made when we were discussing this list is there are a lot of games where the limit to communication is there to make something else work, specifically secret roles. Since secret roles simulate you being in an environment where you wouldn't have perfect information, most of them say, for example, you cannot say exactly what number card you are playing or things like that, because otherwise it becomes a very simple process of elimination. If, say, everyone needs to play a green card, and then the trader has to play a red card, and then we flip, and everyone says before flipping, oh, I play the three green, I play the five green, I play the four green, and obviously the only one that cannot say what green they played is the trader that would fail. So we left that out because that is a different topic for, for another day, probably. Yeah. So 
I think that some people get very frustrated by lack of communication gains because, first of all, they are often cooperative. And so people feel like, why do you make me cooperate with someone and then take away my agency to do so? <laughs> and I do understand that feeling, but to me, that's something that I really enjoy. Um, the one that didn't work for me and that caught the world by storm, I don't know if it won the, the Spiel des Jahres or was uh, a run, runner-up for the Spiel des Jahres, was The Mine that came out in 2018, which is by Wolfgang Worsch. Really? Yeah, he's the guy who does uh, Guns and Clever, I think. Yeah. yeah, and have you played The Mine? No. So some people, I refuse. <laughs> some people like to debate whether the mind is a game or not, which is not something that I particularly care about. Whether it's a game or an activity is one that I don't particularly enjoy. So in the mind, you are trying to play cards in a sequence, in a very simple sequence. You are playing cards from lower to higher, lowest to highest, I, I must say. And you have a certain amount of cards between 1 and 100. You start with, like, everyone has one card. And then the next level, everyone has two cards. It's a cooperative, and you try to play them in order. But you cannot say anything. So at some point, someone will have to play the first card. And if you ever play a card that is higher than something that someone else has in hand, you, you lose a life or something like that, too and you are trying to make it through the level without losing all your lives. There are some support tokens and things like that. The point is, obviously, if you have the one, you will play it right away. And if you have the two and you see that no one is playing it, you will play it immediately after that. But what if, for example, the lowest card that you see is a 17? 17 on the scale from 1 to 100 is quite low. But will you play the 17? You're waiting to see if someone has maybe the 13, the 12. And so how much you wait is, is the topic. And people say, people who argue that this is a game argue that uh, you get better at it. And I'm certainly that's true. And again, I'm not arguing against it being a game. But to me, it was doing it for the sake of doing it. It's not even that I had a horrible time doing it. You're simply thinking, oh, is this the right time? And it's a lot about finding a rhythm. There are rules about not being able not only to communicate, but you're not supposed to count in your mind. You're not going, one, okay, now two. No one is doing two, okay, three. So you are only trying to gauge what other people are doing. And I'm sure you can get better at it. That doesn't make it particularly interesting to me. But uh, I know that a lot of people really, really like it and play it hundreds and hundreds of times. The description of it is sad um to me <laughs> it's basically you have a hand of cards and you stare at each other and then you play a card when you feel like you should play a card yep so i mean it just sounds not great i also find it amazing when games like this i mean kudos to them to both the publisher and the designer but you can play that with a deck of cards that goes to 100, but you could play it with a deck of cards that goes to a 50 to just be off the game. It's, that, that didn't work for me. So try to move to something positive, unless you also have something to, to despise, or otherwise you want to move to your number three. I don't know. No, I'll move to my number three, which is Quirky Circuits. Which is also my number three. Ta-da! So, Quirky Circuits is a game from Plat Hat Games. And it is a programming game where you are putting down cards, which will be resolved in order, in the order that they're played. And you are trying to move cute little robots through different levels. And there's a, a book with different scenarios and you're using one of, I think, four different robots. There's the dog, the cat, the and the server oh yeah the robot the like robot person so there is the bee robot and the robot robot that's yeah. what you're telling me well okay. they're all they're all robots 
but one yeah. is more robot than the others. I think they're all robots. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, robots. So, um, yeah, so each of them has their own, like, deck of cards. They have, each scenario is different. Uh, you're trying to do different things, either, like, sweep up all the dust bunnies or uh, move something from one area of the map to the other area of the map. Or the one that we most recently tried was trying to, like, deliver sushi. Yeah. And... That was really hard. Cause we really, really failed at that. We, like, threw it all on the floor. <laughs> and, like, yeah, it failed. But it was cool. Like, it was fun to see what people played. And so the communication limit comes in is that you can't talk when you're playing the, the action programming cards. And there are specific cards that have to be played um, first. Like, if you have a certain backed card it has to be played before you can play any other cards in your hand and so you know what kinds of cards the yellow backed cards are but you don't know exactly what the person played so it's a lot of trying to infer what is happening and the like i said the last game we played the in inferring was uh, a fail on half the team yeah, and I think the game lives and dies by that limited communication. Because, as you said, if you could just program your robot, it's not, it's not Robo-Rally level of complexity where you might even make a mistake on your own, even if you had all the time. Probably you wouldn't, but you have to think very hard. It's a very simple programming. You are moving forward, turning to the right, picking up, dropping. But the fact that you're doing it in a sequence that you're not 100% sure what other people are doing not only makes it uncertain, but also makes the calculation more complex because you're trying, so I think Nathan moved forward one, so I might play this. Wait, what if he moved forward two? And then I think he turned right, but what if instead he turned U-turn? And so you're trying to play cards that would kind of work all the way anyhow, and you're also trusting your your next person not just to do the right thing obviously but also to trust that you did the right thing and so sometimes people go oh i thought you just did a mistake and then no you you have to think that if i play the card there is a reason i'm trying to think of why and i think it's really really nice the one part of information that uh you do get is that the backs of the cards either will show a direction or a movement so you'll know if a movement was played or you'll know if uh, just a spin or a turn was played. So I think that that's really smart. It limits the information that you're getting. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very, very simple game. It's always a lot of fun to see the chaos that comes from it. I really like games like that, that have that sort of chaos in them, like uh, Cult Express also has the action programming where there's chaos. Sometimes uh, Lords of Seedit can have <laughs> chaos, but not because of... That one's more of just not realizing what other people are going to do. Yeah, well, these two can really create things that... Oh, now... I punched the air. <laughs> we, we, yeah, or we didn't pick up the item, so now we're moving in the right way, but I thought you... You play the action that picked up the, the item. No, I play the action that it's something slightly different. So since you took my number three, I will mention a game that I really wanted to put on the list, even if I have never played it. It's called Witness. And it's basically a crime-solving game which uses the... What is it called in English? The game where you whisper something in someone's ear and they repeat it is... Telephone? The, uh, the telephone game, yeah. We call it the telegraph game in, in Italian. Uh, the wireless telegraph. And I've played this. You have played Witness? I have not. It sounds like it would be very fun. And you are... Basically, everyone receives information about a case. Yep. And you are communicating it to each other and you're trying to piece it together. And so... People need to retain information and communicate it efficiently, and that sounds like something that would like to come. It's fun. Do you own you it? Mean, no. It's very out of print. Oh, is it really? 
yeah, you have to just relay all, as much information as possible, uh, telephone style. And it's, it's weird because like, you have to like be as detailed as possible when you're doing it. And then like trying to remember and it's fun. I really like it. I thought it was, uh, I played it once, I think, but it was cool. It was chaotic. For me, that's the added bonus of the art and the name actually is Bla Blake and Mortimer Witness. And Blake and Mortimer is a French comic book that I kind of grew up with. My father really liked it and there are these two detectives. And so that's an additional charm. The game is by Dominique Baudin, uh, published by Asmodee and Istari. And again, if you know where to find a copy for a reasonable amount of money, just let me know. Okay, so what's number your number two? My number two is Pictomania. That's Vladashabatl, I think. I think so, also. Um, so that is from Czech Games? Oh yeah, C CGE. Yep. So that is the easiest and most simplest way to or most simple way. Simplest? The simplest way. Simplest there is. Yeah. Way to describe Pictomania is that it's Pictionary, but everybody's drawing at the same time and everyone's guessing at the same time and it's real-time drawing and guessing and people sometimes forget that that's what you're supposed to do and that you have to be guessing and drawing at the same time and it's so good. It's it's fun to play on the easy levels because people feel more confident in their drawings and, and it's funny when people mess up and then um, the harder levels are fun and insane when you have to differentiate between prepositions or, or different job types that are basically all the same. My favorite is the card that has historian, philosopher, theologian, theorist, thinker, and something else. And I love that. I really like it. Uh, what made you think of it in terms of the limited communication? So I thought of it because the you can't really like talk at all with about like what your drawing is. So you are forced to communicate through pictures only and you can't you also can't like write down words. So that's what made me think of it. And you can't really, you're not allowed to explain your drawing. Like people can ask like, what is that? And often, especially when I'm drawing, people are like, what is that? <laughs> what is that? What are you? And you can turn it to like orient it so that they, way they can see it from the direction that you're meaning for them to see it from. But other than that, that's all the communication you can do. You can't like point and go this, like you can't do arrows. You can't do words, nothing like that. So that's why I feel like it's very limited in what you can do because you're just communicating through a picture. We'll allow it with a warning because it's technically admissible, but with a warning because I don't, I don't feel it. You don't feel like it's a limited communication. I mean, it's technically is, but it's a drawing game. It can be both, therefore the warning, but also my my process of decision is very biased in that only what I feel matters. Oh, okay. And so you, you get the first warning. You, I let you go with no ticket this time. Okay, thank you. Um, but you like it, though, right? I really like it. I I don't think I, I ever played Pictionary that much, so I wasn't one to, oh, I hated Pictionary, like you hear from people from time to time. I... I liked it the few times I played it. Yeah. Um, it's a very classic uh, party game. But this makes it so that you're constantly involved, you're not playing teams. And the fact, the, the genius part, I think, is exactly what you were saying before, that you're not just drawing something. You're drawing something from a list. And someone can get to the list, unless you're drawing particularly bad, and then they're trying to understand what on that list is are you doing because even at the low levels for example you might have a card 
that sure doesn't have those crazy almost same things, but it has different kind of fruit. And so one thing is distinguishing a watermelon from a boat, but when you're distinguishing a watermelon from an apple, or a you, you cannot simply do a fruit that is that is round. But yeah, and and I think we mentioned this before. But you also can be very good at drawing a specific biblical character and just get the wrong <laughs> character. There was this. You you did amazing. I don't remember which character was it, but you went all in on one specific story. Everyone got it. it was clear. Only that referred to another character. Yep. And so when we when we resolved, you were like, "Why? Why didn't you guys get it?" And it was great. And that happens with a bunch of stuff like when I think that an item is something and I draw that item and I'm particularly happy of that item, especially with kitchen items, and then people go, this. And I'm like, no, but yeah, you, you draw it perfectly. That's called this. Okay, ah, I thought it was that. <laughs> okay. So my number two instead is The Grizzle. Which is my number one. Which is by... Um, Fabien Riffo and Juan Rodriguez. Um, the artist is Tinu, and it's published. I don't know who publishes it in the US. Sweet Games is the original publisher. I th- feel like we have talked about this before a lot. It's a cooperative game where you are trying to play cards from your hand and basically get rid of all of the cards in your hand. And if you like each round to have everyone do the same. But there are certain limits. If you play more than a certain amount of certain cards, you bust. So you generally don't want to do it on purpose. But some cards create enforced rules on you that may sometimes um, do that. I think what makes Gridzold specifically interesting is this mechanism and also the feeling of the game. It's a war game that is not about defeating your enemies, but about surviving the war. The theme, which is charming, but also a little melancholic, is that you are this group of friends who got thrown into the World War One. you are on the French side, and you are not trying to defeat the Germans or anything. You're, the problem in the game are not specific armies or anything like that, but are the rain, the snow, uh, the poisonous gas, the threat of bullets, the threat of your own commander sending you out by whistling the command to attack. And so it's a little grim because you are either just surviving or dying. There is no <laughs> achievement that you can reach. But I really, really like the game and it does live and die by not being able to tell other people what you have in your hand. That and... Um... There are specific ones that limit sometimes what you can say also, mm-hmm. where you can't talk at all. So I think it's I think it's a good game. I think that it's probably one of my favorite games that I don't own currently. Mm-hmm. It's I have a fun time every time we play it. I think that I think that I like it so much because even though it's a cooperative game, it's very challenging. We hardly win it (laughs) so i think that that's what really like makes me enjoy it and makes me feel like really accomplished when we do win well and i also think that is one of those games like my number one to get to in a moment where it's a copy which everyone is very responsible for what they're doing you can never ask should I play this card or this other? Right. You cannot rely on someone else, and by just no one can overstep your your decision, right? You it's maybe a, that's why I like it too. Yeah, is that there's no like, what is that called? Quarterbacking. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's enforced in a good way, right? The the, the rules don't feel like they're there to stop someone from quarterbacking. It's just that you have your hand and you have to decide what to play and specifically not knowing what other people have is where you are. So asking someone something would not make sense in the game. So it's not just that they tell you, oh, let's play Pandemic, but you cannot ask for suggestions. Asking for suggestions would completely break the game. So it's obvious to everyone that you have to, to make your own decision. And that brings to a lot of, I think, self criticism people often say oh i i shouldn't have done this 
well, sure, because now you know the information that you didn't have. And so right. it's a game where a lot of people tend to blame themselves, I think, more than they should. But um, And that carries into my number one, which is nothing particularly shocking. It's Anabi, um, also by Antoine Bauza. The art is by Bauza himself, Willy Erlenti. And it's not the greatest art ever, no. if I may say. It's it's just pictures of well pictures the drone pictures of um, fireworks mm-hmm. hanabi I think it means um, fireworks the theme of the game is that you're arranging a display of fireworks you are playing cards in a sequence that's what you're doing and you are trying to play red cards from one to five blue cards from one to five and so forth and so on and you can only play the next card of each color so if if the only card that is down on the table is the one red, what you can play is either the two red or the one of any other color. The tricky part, and what made Anabi famous and successful, and what makes this a game rather than simply playing cards on the table, is that you cannot see your own hand. Your own hand is held showing the cards to other players. And so you are trying to deduce what you have to play by seeing what other people have, and by what clues they give you. But when you give a clue to someone, you cannot choose a card and give them information. You have to tell them which cards are of one color or which cards of one number. So I will point at two cards in your hand and say, these two are white. And at the very beginning, when you start playing the game, you tend to be very literal. So you go, you have these two ones, and then someone else will tell you the colors or these two are threes. And you manage to define the cards so that they know they can play it. But to succeed at the game and what happens very early, not after hundreds of plays, but even when someone has played it once and you play again, you start again, like we mentioned for Quickly Circuit, to draw information not just from the clues that are given to you, but by the fact that you're trusting the other players because it's a cop. And so you start doing, oh, he told me that this is that these are three, but I that information alone doesn't give me enough. But no one else has given me information. That means that I must have some other piece of information I can use. Maybe they are both of the same color. Or sure, they told me it's white, but that means they want me to play it now because otherwise, why would they give me that information? But that's also where the game gets tricky because as soon as you read that hidden information wrong, you make a mistake and that can doom the game. And then the the limitation is further limited because you only have a set number of clues that you can give. Yeah, absolutely. I forgot about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's crucial. Limits on limits on limits. And you can gain them back, but you discard cards. And since the cards are limited, you don't have only one copy of each card, but you don't have multiple either. I think you have two of everything, one of one, so to three of ones and one five per color. And so you can discard any card to get back a clue anytime, but you don't know what you're discarding. So what if you discard exactly the next card that was needed? Anabi scales particularly well. It completely changes in an experience. If you play with two, is very tough and extremely tense, but also you have a lot more control because you you but you have less information but more control. You only see 50% of the card rather than two-thirds, but I really, really like Hanabi. Um, I have played it multiple times. It's one of those few games of which I always keep, maybe not right now because of COVID things change, but I usually have multiple copies of Hanabi so that if someone likes it, I can go, here, here is a copy. And that's mainly because it's cheap, but <laughs> I, I also really, really like it. Um, they came out with the deluxe edition, which for some reason decided to go with black tiles rather than mahjong-like tiles, and I didn't particularly love that, but I really like the portability of it. it it's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good game. I'm really bad at it, which is apparently a theme for uh, these limited kinds of games. Communication. <laughs> yeah, limited communication. I'm not the greatest. It means you're a very open and communicative person. I guess so. So this was You Can't Say That, our segment about what you cannot say and what games are made better by not being able to say things.
So thank you so much for listening. As always, um, please like, subscribe, share, anywhere that you find this. Um, if you have left a comment for us somewhere and we haven't responded to us, try somewhere else. <laughs> and I'm sorry because it's usually me. I forget to, to check things. Uh, but we are active on our Instagram, Board Game Gambit, uh, Twitter, Board Game Gambit. We're on BGG, under podcasts, Board Game Gambit. Facebook, Board Game Gambit. I Basically, think, um, look up Board Game Gambit. I think they get the drift now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to those of you who have reached out. As always, I've been Jackie. And I'm Nathan. So please don't limit your communication with us and leave us a comment or a suggestion and we'll get back to you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.